Hello listener, it's the Wiggly Wigglers number 14 podcast and I'm here with Richard in the sitting room. Hi Heather. Hello Rich. And we've got lots to fit in this week. We've got Matt Dunwell coming in. Well actually, he's not coming in. Uh. We've Skyped him. So there's our first ever Skype interview, hopefully, if it's worked. Uh, If there's no Matt Dunwell on this podcast, listener, (laughs) sorry. (laughs) Um, We're going to be talking about composting, general composting. Because Kitchen Garden have brought out a review of all the different composters. Right. A Space for Nature website, we're going to talk about that. And yep. it's also reviewed our podcast. Phil the Farmer's coming in, and we've got Monty's Wormcast. But first of all, what a morning I've had, Rich. You have. You've had a, a bit of an adventure this morning. <laughs> I've been on the Victoria Derbyshire show on Radio 5 Live talking about working hours. They only rang you yesterday, didn't they? Yeah, they, they rang yesterday, which I thought was quite interesting because it was all about limiting your working hours. But they got back to me at about 7 o'clock. And then this morning, I went to the radio station and sat on the step for 40 minutes. <laughs> so good start then. Good start. Was it, it was a remote interview, wasn't it? Yeah. It was a, I, I had to go to Hereford studio and then join in with the discussion on Five Live. It was due to be with Bob Crow the RMT union guy, yeah. um, but actually it was with Paul Sellers from the TUC. Right. But it was good fun. Yeah, it was very good, wasn't it? We listened to the interview in the office and the, the girls working down in dispatch had their radio on yeah. and I was listening to it and giggling away. That's right. I think it was because it was the BBC, they, did, they wouldn't say Wiggly Wigglers. So they, they tried they all sorts of <laughs> things. <laughs> tried all sorts of ways of saying a small business in Hereford, yeah. a company in Hereford, yeah. a gardening company in Hereford. <laughs> So every time I started, I tried to say, Wiggly Wigglers does it this way. You did. The, th- the, first, the first bit, the first chapter, if you like, you, you didn't manage to get Wiggly Wigglers in. <laughs> I said, oh, what if she'll get it Wiggly Wigglers in? <laughs> but you more than compensated in the next We had bets on how many times we could mention Wiggly Wigglers, didn't we? <laughs> I went, I said I was going to mention it five times and I actually only managed three. Oh, but anyway. It's still impressive. Yeah. Well, what are we going to talk about first? Should we talk about the Space for Nature website? Yeah. We've had a review on the Space for Nature website with Richard Burkmar, who is a wildlife expert. In fact, he was on the Bill Oddie programme, Spring Watch, with me. Right. When you press the red button, it was either me or Richard Burkmar or Chris Baines. Right. And he's a total enthusiast, isn't he, about wildlife? He knows his stuff, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah. But he wasn't so enthusiastic about podcasting. And he said in his review, I'll be honest and say that before subscribing to the Wiggly Wigglers podcast, I had never before listened to one and I was somewhat doubtful that I would find the format to my taste. However, I am now a convert. The podcasts deliver a degree of personalisation and inclusiveness that just cannot be achieved through web pages alone. My reservations were largely due to the difficulty I would have in finding half an hour every week to listen. Indeed, for this review, I just listened to the podcast in front of my computer using iTunes. But this ignores one of the central tenets of this podcasting phenomena. They are designed to be delivered flexibly on many devices and in many situations. Subscribing to the service will not cost you a penny. If you like wildlife gardening and you have the technology, it's well worth subscribing. Can't get better than that, Rave can you? Review. 
Yeah, I think so. And I thought we could talk about his website, Space for Nature, because you've had a look. It's, it's, a, it's a really, really good website. It's an interesting layout. It, he's obviously a very clued up about his making spaces for nature, about garden for wildlife, and yeah. about, about natural history in general. And to be able to create something like that rather off your own bat is going to take a, you know, a lot of time. He's obviously spent quite a lot of energy building his website and continues to spend time building his website. Mm. There's lots of information on there. I was looking at the bit where he told you how to plant your native hedge. Right. And it goes into lots of <coughs> details. And there's also lots of photos. It's very um, topical, isn't it? Yeah. It's interesting. It, it's really good advice. I mean, it, it does seem, you kind of read it, and sometimes you, you go onto these websites and you read people's advice and you think, well, yeah, I'm not entirely sure that that's the case. But, you know, by contrast, Richard's information is, is spot on. Yeah, I think so. I've asked him to come on our podcast, and he's well-versed with the media. He's just starred on Korean TV, I think. So. Oh, wow. Yeah, what about Gardening for Wildlife? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> anyway, are we going to give it the chocolate rating or not? Yeah, well, I think you want to. I, I do, right. Just to remind listeners of the chocolate rating. Number one, Hershey's. Yuck, yuck. Number two, <laughs> Nestle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Number three, Cadbury's. Number four, Galaxy. <laughs> and number five is Milka. Oh, mustn't shout too loud, it ruins the sound. Yeah. Um, so, what are we going to give? Space for Nature website, Richard Birkmark. Richard. Oh, I think it's probably uh, Galaxy. Galaxy? Yeah, Galaxy. Oh, yeah. Yes. So, it's very good. Is that yeah, I know why you're not giving it Milka. No, well, you'll tell me off. Well, no, it's not that. It's because Wiggly Wiggly's website, isn't it? Yeah, well, a Wiggly Wiggly's website is, is a milk. Yeah, definitely, definitely. A galaxy's pretty good. Well done, Richard. We've had another review on iTunes, actually. And I was going to say to listeners, if you get a chance to go and comment on our podcast, right. go to iTunes, where you subscribe, yeah. and write a review. Because it encourages other listeners to understand what the heck we're on about. Uh, well, we had a great review. Really? I've not seen yeah. that. Oh, Haven't you seen that? No. Oh, he, he mentions the, the chocolate rating. Ah, uh, right, right. Yeah. The Wee Podcast. Let your iPod bloom. This month's Kitchen Garden magazine has got a review on composters, conventional composters, and Wiggly Wigglers is in- included in it. Hmm. And I wanted you, Rich, to talk about it in terms of what you think, what the best way is to compost, and whether you agree with what they've written, and how Wiggly Wigglers has come out in it, actually. Yeah, we've come out well, as we kind of hope, as we sort of expect, really, I guess. It's a good article. It's really interesting. I think the article's been probably been done a few times before, but they've tried to do it in, in a slightly different, more interesting way. But what they're looking at is the whole range of compost bins to give people an idea of the, the best bins to use, really, for effective composting. So something you, you can put in the garden. And what they're looking at, um, the speed at which these things compost the waste, how they look, what, how much they cost, what they're made of, all those kind of things. They've reviewed something like, I think... 13 hmm. different types of bins in here. And what different types have they looked at? They've got all sorts of things in here. They've got, you know, your, your conventional kind of Dalek plastic compost bins, a couple of tumblers. A couple of um, wooden... Well, there's Wiggly Wiggly's compost box. 
Yeah. And then a double bay composter. The Wiggly Wiggly's compost box they've put here, like this very much, produced good compost. Would be easy to add additional modules if needed. Uh, but interesting, there's a, there's a statement here that we've heard I mean, before. It says, some splitting along knots on wood. Well, unfortunately, wood is, because it's you know, <laughs> a natural product, it does tend to split sometimes. Uh, it's interesting, you know, people they say, oh, it's a bit rough or it's kind of a bit knotty or something like that. But I think, you know, it's all part of the character of wood, isn't it? You know, it's natural oh, and that's yeah. what makes it beautiful. I mean, if you want a perfect finish, then go for a plastic Dalek. If yeah. you want something that's natural, then it's got to be, gotta be it's wood, be wood isn't, it? isn't it? Really? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, plastic's all very well, but of course it's, you know, it's derived from fossil fuels, so the, you know, the environmental implications of using something that's from, you know, from an unsustainable uh, resource. If you're looking to have a holistic approach to gardening in a sustainable way, then really mm. you need to look at the products that you put into your garden as well. I was interested that the tumblers didn't come out very well. No, generally we have really good feedback about we that, do. don't we? And Monty Don actually <coughs> reviewed it as a, a really good composter. Well, I think sometimes, you know, it's, it's subjective. It's, I, it, I do. Down to individual choice, you know. And this person who's reviewed this has said um, about the Blackwell Tumbler, even when only a quarter full, found it quite hard to tumble. Hmm. But personally, I, I wouldn't <laughs> find it in the least bit hard to tumble. No. Nope. You know, I can say that, mm. you know, honestly. So I think articles like this are valuable in the sense that they show you all the different types of composters there are. You know, for example, the beehive composter comes out as, obviously, the most attractive composter. But where I beg to differ with them is to actually review composting and its effectiveness because, you know, one of the statements that they make is that hot composting is better than cold composting. Yeah. Well... You know, Centre of Alternative Technology have spent an awful lot of time trialling all these different methods, and they've come out that cold composting is more effective. Now, I think you choose your composter based on how it fits into your garden. Absolutely. So if you've got a really attractive veggie garden, as we've got in our garden, raised beds, you know, some sunflowers in amongst it, some marigolds, then I'd go for the beehive composter. I've got a massive lawn. I'd go for the double bay composter. It's interesting, especially worm composting, for example. People assume that if you have a worm composter, it'll work the same way in, say, London as it will in Edinburgh. But, of course, it won't. It's it's very much dependent on daylight hours, fluctuations in temperature, all those kind of things. So Mm. it tends to be that the speed at which you can compost is dependent on, on weather conditions. I always think that if you look at a composter as a waste disposal unit, it's usually not a success in the sense that it's simply not a machine. But if you look at it as a process, <clears throat> then you can't get anything better than producing your own compost out of the waste that you're otherwise going to send to the landfill. Yeah. It, it's interesting what you said about the CAT, the Centre of Alternative Technology, that they've spent a great deal of time looking at different ways of, of composting and different types of composting techniques, using various materials to build their compost bins as well. But because they've spent the time, and it's really what you need to do if you have a garden, you need to spend a bit of time getting the mix right so that's as important in many respects, probably more important than, than the type of bin you're going to buy. So you get the mix right, you dry fibrous material, you, you know, your cardboard and your paper. Um, you know, if you include those with your grass kippings and your, your you know, deadhead flowers and your, the stuff from your kitchen, um, that's what's important, getting that mix right. And that's what will help accelerate the whole composting process. So give us the recipe, um, Rich, because not everyone uh, has got time to experiment you know, is there a way that if I add a barrel full of clippings that I know roughly how much paper or cardboard or whatever it is to add, is there a ratio that you can simply give us? Probably rule of thumb would be 
if you add uh, a quarter, this is by volume, obviously not by, yeah. not by weight, but a quarter of, of all the, uh, of the material you add should be dry fibrous waste like newspaper and cardboard, mm. ripped up, shredded up and thrown into your compost bin. Exactly the same applies to wormery, yeah. if you have a wormery. But certainly a quarter, I mean, even, even a third, because the moisture, all this stuff, it takes out the moisture mm. and it do, really does make a really good fibrous compost. Mm. Composting is not a black art, is it? No, no matter what you do, at some point it will rot down. These ideas are just ways of improving the process so that you can fit all the darn waste you've got in yeah. the bin that you've got yeah, instead right. of taking up acres of space. Yeah, absolutely. Lovely. What is that smell, Rich? <laughs> I think you'll find it's Farmer Phil. <laughs> oh, good Lord. <laughs> Can we describe the scene, Richard? Yeah, well, Phil's just wandered in <laughs> and dumped himself in his nice comfy armchair. <laughs> and we've exchanged, uh, we've exchanged pleasantries and I've yeah. taken a look at Phil and realised that he's covered in head to toe with, with cow manure. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 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 Mm. Never mind, we have got a cleaner as Alison yeah. told us. Yeah, that's it? right, that's mm. right. So, why are you coming here, Phil? Big cow business at time of year, it's really. Um, right. We've started calving in earnest now, so we've got that, and that's a fairly contact sport in itself. Yeah. But today, I've just sadly had to take some of our cull cows to the collection centre, which is why I'm covered in cow work. Right. Because um, getting them in the trailer is also a contact sport <laughs> can get covered. So what have you been doing then? I've been taking cull cows, which so are cows that are no, will no longer breed. Right. Um, because the legislation, they can't go into the food chain. At the end of this month, it actually changes and that cows younger than a certain age can go into the food chain. But basically, these cows can't, so they have to go to the slaughterhouse to be slaughtered, and then their carcasses are burnt. Oh, right. Um, Was that because of BSE? Yeah, it's to make sure that there's no potential for getting anything related to BSE into the food chain. And the way they've done that is by saying that every animal that is older than a certain age and could have been exposed to the feedstuff that they think caused BSE, whether it has or not, can't go into the food chain. How do you feel about that when you're bundling your cows in there and they're not going off? It's not to great, them? no. But, you know, that's how it is. I, I've said it before that having animals, you're, you're responsible to look after them, but you're also responsible for the nasty bit at the end when you have to do something about them when they're either beyond their productive life or, you know, they need a vet or whatever. So yeah, it's, it, it's all part of the same thing. Why, why yeah. have you been to the market then? Because you're not a fan of markets. No, I'm not a fan of markets. It, the, the fact that I've been to the market is incidental. What happens there is that they use it as a collection centre because obviously it has the facilities to pen the cattle up and they take all the cattle on one day that are due to go to the abattoir and to make sure that there's no cross-contamination in the abattoir the abattoir says today we're doing OTMS over 30 month scheme cattle and nothing for human food so that they can do those cattle and then clean the whole thing out completely right um, and that's the reason for it and the reason for collection centres. Yeah, why? So, not very happy, but... Yeah, it has to be done. Any good news from Lower Blakemere? Well, yes, really. We spoke a couple of weeks ago about our twins. Well, about three weeks later, we had another pair of twins. Yeah, why? And given that I reckon that twins come along about 1% of the time, for the first two cattle to calve in the herd to both have healthy twins, I reckon is yeah, a fair turn up for the book. Isn't it? I don't think my maths is up to, to the statistics, but 
it doesn't happen very often. And uh, all four calves and their mothers are doing very well, so it's oh, great. Well, that's brilliant. Yeah. Have you got to feed them extra milk? No, what we tend to do is to feed the cows their mothers extra food because uh, you know obviously they've got to support more in the way of calves so that we'll put them separately and give them more food. Because right. at the moment there's a big channel down the middle of the hmm. shed where you go and... Well, look, the cows are divided up in several ways, but the, the, we divide them up in terms of the date we expect them to calve. <laughs> so that the... The, the, well, there are errors from time to time, but the theory is that the cows that are most likely to calve, that the vet has pregnancy tested to calve now, are in one pen, and then they're divided up according to their calving date. And then we take exceptions, like the twins, and perhaps something that needs extra food or more TLC or whatever, and they'll go in a pen on their own. And we've got isolation pens and a little yard up at the top of the yard, which we use specifically for that sort of thing right brilliant and the bulls live in there as well so. I, I saw the bulls you know just before Christmas I went into the shed we had some visitors that uh, hopefully might be making our or some of our woodly bug boxes excellent and they wanted a tour so I said well let's go and look well I thought I've never been in here before so <laughs> I went in and there's three monstrous great bulls in there <laughs> they are big old boys aren't they well, well Penguin Quarter who's the latest addition who's our Aberdeen Angus bull he's also the youngest and he's very handsome but he, he's quite excited by being in his own bullpen. And if you take straw or whatever in there, he goes absolutely berserk, bounces off the walls and jumps about. It's quite potentially dangerous, That's but it's, right. it's very funny. <laughs> he thinks a it's a animal. huge joke. Yeah. Well, we could answer a, a question that's still in the ether about why Penguin Quarter is called Penguin Quarter. Because on one podcast I asked it, and then we talked about something else, unusually. Yeah. So why is Penguin Quarter called Penguin that? Quarter's name is, the penguin bit is his herd name, so that the farmer who bred him, all his pedigree Aberdeen Angus cattle, are called Penguin something. Don't ask me why his herd name is Penguin, but that's just how that is. And Does Quarter he walk is with a name. waddle? Not really, no. Oh. And Quarter is his name. And different farmers have different ways of naming pedigree animals. For example, I, I know one chap who names all his bulls after Roman generals and so on. And you get another chap I know names all his cows after flowers. Uh-huh. So, and he's got whole families of them so that he's got a whole line of snowdrops yeah. up to about 110, I think he's got two now. Really? So that he's got Sexton Snowdrop, the 110th. And this sort of thing. That so is you know. interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but they're all, they're all mother-daughter, so that they're all related to each other, so that then you'll have cowslip, which is another family, and so on. And yeah. that's how it works. Brilliant. Uh, well, next week we must hear all about you filling in that very exciting form. The one you like so much. Yes, which is the ELS. And that'll tell us how he's going to improve the farm to be more attractive to wildlife, won't it, Phil? It will. It will also help us to comply with the latest dose of regulation that we're now governed by and so that we don't break any rules on that and it's all environmentally tailored rather than production tailored now. Not too political, darling. Moving on, thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs) The Wigglypodcast.com Wiggles. We've been up to exciting trailer making this morning, haven't we, Rich? Yeah, yeah. Uh, We're going on the Naked Scientist podcast next week to talk about wiggly wigglers and composting. So have a listen to our trailer, which we've had great fun making, and listening to the Naked Scientist podcast. 
I'm Heather from Wiggly Wigglers. And I'm Richard from Wiggly Wigglers. And we are stripping off ready to go on the Naked Scientist next week. Get your socks off then, love. <laughs> <laughs> what are we going to talk about, Rich? We're going to talk about composting. And we're going to talk about two specific composting techniques, worm composting and using effective microorganisms. Okay. Worms are the most effective composters in the world. In fact, they can eat half their body weight in waste every single day. They are much maligned creatures. The greatest ever British scientist, in my opinion, studied worms for 35 years, I think, Charles Darwin. People often think about composting and they say, where's the science in composting? But in actual fact, there's a great deal of science in composting. So, we'll be on next week's show. Can't wait. No, we're looking forward to it, aren't we? Yeah, trousers off then, Rich. My pleasure. <laughs> Ooh, that was that then. Yeah. Oh, what are we going to get up to next, Rich? <laughs> <laughs> the mind boggles. Yes, you can put them back on now. Okay. Over to Monty. The Wiggly Wormcast podcast by Monty. A weekly fact on worms. Earthwormcasts contain five times more nitrogen, seven times more phosphorus, eleven times more potassium and 1,000 times more beneficial bacterial than the material the earthworm ingests. So don't kill them on your lawn. Thanks, Monty. That was ace, as usual. Now, the next thing we're going to talk about are those shiitake mushrooms that grow on logs, aren't we? Yeah, we've been selling lots of those up to Christmas, so we thought it'd be useful if the listener heard how to make them fruit yeah. So we've asked Matt to come and Skype us. Right. So we'll now switch him on, hopefully. Calling Matt. Calling Matt. Hello, Matt. Nice of you to come on the Wiggly Wigglers podcast. It's a pleasure. Tell us where you're from. Well, I'm farming at a farm called Ragman's Lane Farm, which is in the Forest of Dean. Mm-hmm. It's a 60-acre farm on the banks of the River Wye. I guess I've been farming there for about 15 years or so. Is it a first-generation farm, or have your family been farming for the last billion years? <laughs> no, first-generation farm. I started managing it when we were fairly young, and I think one of the things I've tried to do with the farm is to involve as many people as I can on the land in terms of whether they want to come and run a business there. We've got a guy called Steve Pickup who runs the Willow Bank, which um, has a, a large collection of willows and he sells cuttings out through various different people. Yeah. We've also got a group of people that make cider there and various different teachers that teach through the farm as well. You've got delicious apple juice. <laughs> we, yes, I, I mean, I, over the years we've tried lots of different things. We've we've had sheep, cattle, pigs, so we've done livestock, we've, we've run a vegetable box scheme, but now we're concentrating on, well, making our own apple juice. We're planting orchards there, and we're also, as you know, growing organic shiitake mushrooms mm. on logs. Is it an organic farm, then? It is, well, we're in conversion. The mushroom and the apple juice is organic, yep. and the land is now going through a conversion period, and we hope in two years' time we'll be able to to produce our own organic apples and produce most of the fruit for our juice on the farm. Mm, so it's watch this space. Um, <laughs> tell us about these shiitake mushroom logs because Wiggly Wigglers met you at Hay on Wai and, and saw these logs and loved them, thought their customers would love them, and indeed they have. Tell me how you grow them and a bit about them. 
Well, I, I originally came across them about 10 years ago. At the farm, we're always looking for enterprises that will fit well with natural systems. That sounds a bit sort of verbose, but basically, um, if you grow wheat, you have to plow up the land and uh, drill the seeds in and, and all that with the machinery. What we were trying to look for was a, a crop that fitted well with um, a natural system that would fit in the Wye Valley. Now, mushrooms grow very well on fallen timber, especially the, the gourmet mushrooms, the Japanese mushrooms. So we started experimenting with the sort of varieties that would grow well on Forest of Dean Oak, and that's how we came about growing shiitake mushrooms. And how do you do it? <laughs> we actually we have oak delivered from the forest and we grow our own mycelium of the mushroom. That's like the sort of seed of the mushroom. Yeah. And we have a grow room which we grow that on in. And we produce bags of mycelium that are, that are sitting in sawdust. Now we take that sawdust and we drill holes in the logs and then we inject the mycelium-laden sawdust into those holes and then we seal up the holes with the cheese wax and we leave the logs in a woodland environment for about 12 to 18 months. Would you say that the use of oak in this way is justified because obviously oak takes an awful long time to grow? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm fairly happy with the use of oak. I mean, the oak that we buy is very low-grade firewood oak. Most of it's destined for wood chip. Right. So it would go into making up a paper or a cardboard base. Yeah. So I think the idea that you can actually get a protein crop out of it hmm. and then also at the end of that cycle you still have a bit of firewood at the end is a much more efficient use of the oak. Yes, you can still use it as firewood when it's all over, I suppose. In fact, a friend of mine, John, came around and said, oh, isn't that great? You're, you're selling firewood with handles. Uh <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we'd be very happy to... Um, sell any of your customers firewood with handles uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a very expensive block i told him for just a piece of firewood so i was very glad to give him we, his we, christmas present which was a shiitake mushroom log with yes, a handle <laughs> there you are well we have had people that thought they were doorstops and happily took them away for paying nine pounds each for them and i was sort of shouting after them, they, they grow mushrooms <laughs> <laughs> now that's a very rich customer <laughs> um, tell us about um, you and Wiggly Wigglers. How's it going? Well, you made our life quite hard, I think. <laughs> oh, you mean it? After Christmas. Um, we've been really taken by surprise by this Christmas. We've been muddling along for about two or three years, and suddenly this year, I don't know what's happened, but the lid's come off, and everybody is after the logs. We've sold out midway through December, really. And as you know, we, we were, well, you were ringing up every four or five days saying we need more logs. <laughs> <laughs> and we, were, we had a, the Wiggly Wiggler pile of logs, uh, which were getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And I was fighting everybody off, off these logs. I mean, that, that's the good news. And, and I think what we have to do this year is we're just getting a big load of oak in next week. And we're just going to get very busy trying to, to build up for the next season. Fantastic. What do people do with their log? How does it work once they've got it home? Okay, so you're buying a, a piece of oak that is fully inoculated with shiitake spore, and that is ready to fruit. So you, the one way that you can look after them is basically put them out in the garden under a tree or under a hedge. They need low light and low wind, but they do need rainfall on them. They need to be sort of standing away from a building where they might be under in, in a rain shadow. Yeah. And you, you leave it out in the garden like that, and it will throw out the odd mushroom for a period of about eight years. So it'll fruit over a long time span. Wow. 
So that's one way of doing it. But I know there's a much more exciting way, isn't there, Matt? <laughs> there is. And although this isn't 100% guaranteed, more than often, uh, more than um, not, uh, you, you will get a, what is called a flush of mushrooms. If you take your log and you soak it for two days in water, ice-cold water, as cold as you can get it, but without chlorine in it, and after you soak it, you bang it on the ground. That's so cool. And, uh, <laughs> and that is the shock that actually triggers the vegetative growth, which is the mycelium in the log, to then produce reproductive growth, which is actually the fruiting body. So, um, but that, I mean, that does sound a bit hocus-pocus. Are you emulating something that happens in nature? I, I, don't, I mean, I, I've looked at old Japanese woodcuts, because the mushrooms are actually originally from China and then Japan. Yep. And there are old Japanese woodcuts of farmers beating their log with sort of great big sticks to get yep. them to fruit. So there's something in it, whether it's emulating earthquake or branches falling out of trees or, or what it is, but it's... But it it's works. Quite strange. Yeah. yeah. I mean, often when we chainsaw up the logs to cut them up into sort of fruiting logs, the act of the chainsaw actually triggers the logs to fruit. So the vibration from the chainsaw mm, can set okay. them off as well. Interesting. <laughs> and what about the mushrooms themselves? Because I remember my dad having his box of mushrooms in the airing cupboard and, you know, proudly we cook them. Um, are they any good? Well, they taste nice. That's the first thing. They've got a, a quite a beefy texture, an unusual flavour. I mean, all I can say is try some. It's definitely a, an interesting flavour, quite a nutty flavour, I think, for a mushroom. The other thing is that they have medicinal qualities, and they are very good at reinforcing, bumping up your immune system. And they also have antiviral properties as well. So in Japan, you would eat one or two shiitake mushrooms every day or every other day as a sort of one a day keeps the doctor away type thing. Yeah, and here we just have them in posh restaurants, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> they are actually a way of life in Japan. It's part of the rural economy. Is you know There's a lot of shiitake production out in Japanese countryside and it forms a major part of their diet and you know that is very much part of their preventative strategy on, on illness. Mm -hmm. Do they grow them in the same way as us? So would they sell logs or is it more commercial? Um, the commercial guys grow them on sawdust in the same way that we are beginning to. Yeah. Um, so you have a, basically a bag of sawdust and you inoculate it in the same way as a log. That means that you can get a crop within nine weeks rather than a year or a year and a half. But the quality of the mushroom is less good. It's less medicinally active than log-grown mushrooms because basically the slower the mushroom is grown, the more of the active ingredients it's got in it. So what you'll find with the old guys in Japan, the old farmers, they've got their mushroom sheds and then out in their back garden they've got their mushroom logs in the same way that we sell logs. Good Lord. Right, well that's fantastic. Thank you very much. This is our first ever Skype interview and I must say that I've had to ask Matt to do it all again because yesterday I tried and um, I recorded him as if he was silent and me loud. So... <laughs> well, I hope this one works. I hope this one works, listener. If the sound quality isn't quite up to scratch, we're sorry. But wasn't it a great subject? <laughs> Thank you, Matt. Okay, it's a pleasure. Cheers, Heather. Phew, it worked. Oh, that was a close one. Anyway, we've got to wrap up. But just before that, did you enjoy our play, Richard? I did. I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was really, really good. We did tell the listener about the play, didn't we? We did. You know, the Christmas Carol at Preston on Whitechurch. It was really good. It was a, a real experience. A Christmas treat. Yeah, 32 villages. 32 villages, <laughs> yeah. So 32 villages, because it was really expensive, I seem to remember. <laughs> you <laughs> me, thought me so. Me being, well, screwed, you know, drop back. <laughs> so uh, how much money did you manage to raise for the village? Uh, well, we took £2,900. Right. 
and 20 pence. I don't know who put that in. Was that you? And we've actually ended up making somewhere around 1,550 pounds. Right. So it's a good fun night. It is really good. Yeah. 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 So that was because the costumes were expensive, weren't they? And yeah. food and all that kind of mm. stuff. Mm. You so missed the food, didn't you? I did. I missed the food. Ran yeah. off for a takeaway, I, I did. I went into town and got some real food. Good Lord. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to listen to our... Uh, podcast regularly and you've not subscribed you must subscribe go to itunes and if you want to comment on this podcast email richard definitely make it richard richard at wigglywigglers.co.uk otherwise you can comment on my blog my blog is getting very active at the moment there's lots of posts on there so um, make a comment if you'd like to and we'll speak to you all next week look forward to it bye bye